0: What is Yale's music? Maybe it's the bells of Harkness reverberating over campus. Maybe it's the collegiate melody of bright college years. Maybe it's everywhere. This is a podcast about the world as experienced through our years. It's about what we hear, where we hear it, how we hear it, and most importantly, what it all means. My name is Eric Krebs, and this is Behind the Ears. This week, we start with silence. All right, so just to get started. Chapter one silent parties.
1: I'm Laura. I'm a senior in Pearson. I'm a statistics and data science major, and when I'm not doing that, I'm in the YSO. In my case, silence and music Hmm. often go together. So sometimes my favorite parts of um, performances are the silence right afterwards. Mm -hmm. Like this summer, I played Mahler 9, which is this huge hour and a half long symphony.
0: Symphony number no. nine is written by Austro Bohemian composer Gustav Mahler in 1909, two years before his death. Here's Leonard Bernstein on its ending.
2: In the finale of Mahler's Ninth, which is a sonic presentation of death itself, we've experienced a farewell to the world of nature, farewell to love, a farewell to the tonic, a farewell to the world of action, the urban, cosmopolitan life, the cocktail party, the marketplace the raucous careers and careenings of success, of loud and hollow laughter. And all three of these movements have been trembling on a tonal precipice, on the edge of death. And only then comes the fourth and last movement, the adagio, the final farewell.
1: I think my experience with silence at Yale goes back to my experience with silence throughout grade school which was that i went to a quaker school so i don't know how much you know about like the quaker meetings but basically the way i was taught it in the quaker tradition they're silent meeting which they do in place of like church you go to meeting and you sit in silence and i deal and basically the idea is that god can speak through you now i don't really consider myself religious and my school was quite secular like half of my friends were jewish but <laughs> um, It was more taught to us in the way less that God speaking to you but that if you reflect and if you think and if you take time out of your day for silence then like meaningful things will come to you and it's at Yale it's really really hard to find quiet slash silent places. People here don't value enough things that can't be quantified as productive. Mm-hmm. And they don't see taking time to reflect, especially by, some, by yourself, as productive. And so people don't want to take time to be quiet or to reflect. Um, yeah, I actually missed, you know, I missed going to Quaker meeting a lot when I first came here.
0: When Laura was a first-year missing home particularly so, she published an op-ed in the YDN on this topic writing, there may be naked parties, but there are no silent parties. There's no room for silence.
1: Quiet moment together. Um, And I think, you know, the the, the sentence that I have about naked parties and silent parties is like quite snide, (laughs) but I think there's something to be said for, I think part of the naked party is being able to be vulnerable together and being able to kind of show like obviously everyone looks very different, but like, oh, we all kind of have the same bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And I think like a silent party would be very similar where you are you have to, in order to be quiet with someone, you have to be willing to be vulnerable with them and being comfortable around each other without those kind of layers of protection.
2: And only then comes the fourth and last movement, the adagio.
1: In my case, silence and music. Hmm often go together, so sometimes my favorite parts of um, performances are the silence right afterwards. Mm -hmm.
2: The final farewell. It takes the form of a prayer.
1: Like this summer I played Mahler 9, which is this huge hour and a half long symphony, and at the end just no one clapped for like minutes, and then the conductor put his hands down to signal that everyone could clap, and, and still no one clapped, and that was really amazing.
2: Mahler's last chorale, his closing hymn, so to speak, a super prayer for the restoration of life, of tonality, of faith. This is tonality unashamed, presented in all its aspects, ranging from the diatonic simplicity of the hymn tune that opens it through every possible chromatic ambiguity. And between these surges of prayer, There is intermittently a sudden coolness, a wide-spaced transparency like an icy burning, a zen-like immobility, pure meditation.
0: Chapter Two, Layers of Silence.
3: Hi, I'm Sumi Kim. I'm the Buddhist chaplain at Yale University. I started here a year ago. I'm a spousal hire. (laughs) My husband joined the Department of Religious Studies, so they hired him and knew that he wouldn't come unless there was something for me. And there happened to be a vacancy in the chaplain's office for a Buddhist chaplain, and so it was a perfect fit. And um, I was at Duke University for eight years serving in the same capacity, and I absolutely love working with university students. Why? Why? Oh, they're just... So, this age range, um, young adults are fully adult, but their minds are still very plastic, if Mm -hmm. you will, and so they're able to learn and move more easily than an older adult who tends to have Older adults tend to have more fixed views and are a little bit more rigid in their thinking. And um, what else do I love about this age group? Um,
0: okay, pep talk's over. Can you tell me more about the shrine and tell me more about what you do on sort of a day-to-day?
3: Yeah, so this room, as you can probably hear, is very echoey because it has, oh boy, I don't know how high that ceiling is, but 50 feet up. and arch fan arch ceiling and a beautiful stained glass window and the room is constructed primarily in stone which is giving us this echo Uh, but there's dark wood paneling around and these very majestic seats with deep red cushions Um, and when the room is set up we have meditation cushions in here This uh, Harkness Tower was not originally a Buddhist shrine room, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. It's had many incarnations. Um, Probably like, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago, the chaplain's office was able to set it up as a space for the Buddhist students, and we've been using it ever since, and it is such a place of refuge. Above us, or to one side, are the bells. And so students will come and practice playing the bells and you can sometimes hear a little like thud ding it's very quiet in the background it's quite pretty actually
0: in short what is sort of the role of silence in in any way you might define silence um, yeah. in the buddhist tradition
3: yeah so i'll start with this simple answer and then we'll complexify it um, and it'll speak to some of the things that you talked about with your... You must be nervous to have water near your phone. Um, so actually I'll be doing this tonight. What a visual analogy. I did not have quite the right jar for this. So tonight I'll be talking a little bit about um, the mind, meditation, the role of the breath so this is a visual analogy and see if you can kind of interpret it i need to shake this jar up and it's a little bit (laughs) leaky. so inside there's water and baking soda and we're shaking it up we're getting disturbed okay now as this settles uh, we can just watch this and we can breathe just follow our breath breathing in So it begins to settle at the bottom, and then the water begins to clear. It's good for me to trial balloon this because now I know I should not shake it quite so hard. <laughs> so eventually this will become crystal clear. And then using uh, the anchor of the breath, just breathing in and out, what happens is that mental discursion that's you know proliferating in the mind or the feelings or emotions that are um, flying around, they begin to settle down. And then we have this uh, clear awareness, this ability to see with a clear mind the contents of what's happening uh, with our mental and emotional world. And just to extend the analogy a little bit further, many people think that meditation is about emptying the mind of thought or silencing the thinking itself. But really, if you notice with the jar, the baking soda is still there. So our thoughts and our feelings are still going to be there. It's just that we're able to see them more clearly because of that stillness and silence. So um, the answer to your question is that in the Buddhist path, having uh, places of refuge where there is A fair amount of sufficient external silence and stillness is conducive to bringing about internal quiet Um, but it it's not always necessarily true right Um, you've probably had times where you've been in a place that in theory would be experienced as still and quiet but the mind is like worrying about stuff and is going off on fantasy trips and having regrets about the past and and so all this um, without the intentionality to quiet the mind then all this um, proliferate proliferation uh, continues and so then there's actually not really this mental silence either you know so it's possible to be in a silent space but experience a lot of noise internally. Um, so the external silence is supportive, but not necessarily predictive. <laughs> it depends on how you use that, um, the space that you're in. Uh, The mouth is quiet, but the mind is incredibly noisy. (laughs) And I almost think of it as my little non-stop radio. (laughs) W-M-I-N-D. Non-stop talk radio. (laughs) And it sort of drives me a little crazy as it does everybody. So there's no silence. I mean, I'm in a quiet environment, but, you know, it's just like, oh, shut up already. (laughs) Meditation instruction has become increasingly narrated so, that now I think what people think of as meditation is actually guided meditation.
2: The easiest way to get into the meditative state is meditation. to begin. One by way, the way
3: practice begin is to practice mindfulness begins by be sitting sleep. or lying in, in a comfortable, comfortable position. position. And they want the voice of a teacher to be fairly constant and present. Um, and this really struck home to me when I was teaching uh, secular mindfulness workshops at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill with a Department of Psychology NIH-funded um, five-year research project on the physiological effects of mindfulness practice. So I was teaching um, groups of students, not, not college students, I should say subjects, uh, six-week workshops for five years over and over again. And in addition to having classroom time with me, they had an audio CD uh, at the time of 20-minute guided meditations, at the end of which I included about three to four minutes of silence and then five, and toward the last of the progression like five minutes of silence, and very consistently these adult students would come back and say, I love these guided meditations, but I get really freaked out by the last few minutes of silence. And I was just, I'm sort of stunned, like, like why? Why would my narration of the meditation just falling away? Why would that be so unsettling? And I think what's happening is that people are actually very uncomfortable being present with themselves. Uh, Like truly just bare naked present with the raw experience of being your neurotic self. Anybody can just like on your phone set a timer for 20 minutes, right? Ding at the beginning, ding at the end, but that's not what people are drawn to. They're actually willing to pay money to hear someone's voice while they're meditating. Now, this is not to say that guided meditations aren't, and these apps aren't incredibly valuable for the instructional part, but that would be as if you're learning to play piano and then you go to, to you know, a concert and your teacher is still there saying crescendo now, you know, and it's like, you wouldn't do that, right? Your teacher, the guidance, steps to one side and then your ability to play is there. So in the same way, you know, I really feel that guided meditation in the form of these apps should be to get you started and so you can kind of learn how to do it. Um, But then it's really important to sit in silence with yourself and not be afraid.
0: Chapter three, the not so silent library. Maybe it's the orange carpet, the futuristic furniture, or the slightly oppressive brutalist architecture. But to me, Haas library has always felt like the physical manifestation of a piece of minimalist music. Something like Steve Reich's electric counterpoint. It's hard to explain why, but I swear there's something about the association that just feels right. I'd sit in the library with Reich playing just low enough in my headphones for the music to enter my subconscious. I'd imagine the different melodies and rhythms bouncing off the carpet in the windows and the corrugated concrete walls, and listening to Reich and Haas became my ultimate hipster ritual. But after a while, I realized that even without headphones in, or the music on, I would hear, not in my ears, but almost in my subconscious, Steve Reich playing every time I'd walk into the library. There's just one thing, though. Haas doesn't sound like Steve Reich. Haas sounds like this.
4: I'm Heather Gendron. I'm director of the Robert B. Haas Family Arts Library at Yale. The white noise machines at the Arts Library have been here since this reiteration of the Arts Library um, was established back in around 2008. What was called the ANA Library became the Arts Library, and the Paul Rudolph Building, this corrugated concrete structure that we're we're in that part of in my office right now, um, was then connected to the Lauria Center Building, which was a whole new building. So When um, the Lauria edition um, happened, I think after the librarians moved in, who were here at the time, they realized that a lot of sound would travel from the service desk that you see when you come into the library, um, all the way over to the reading room area on the opposite end of the library. And that was because we have a beautiful kind of hard surface floor, you know, um, stone floor when you come in. And it's a beautiful space, um, but this is where a lot of activity happens, like um, patrons have questions that they need to get answered at the desk, or staff are processing the thousands of materials that come in um, on a regular basis. Unfortunately, I think the architects hadn't really considered that as much as they could have. Probably most students who come are grad students and they really want an option of a place to go to. And I think for undergraduates too, but a place that one can go to where they know it's going to be very quiet. There aren't going to be distractions in this very distraction-based world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they, can, they know they can come here and just have it very quiet. So we have a multitude of white noise machines. I tell you, when they're off, You can hear everything.